We are a new community. We are called to be a people of grace. We are made up of every tribe and tongue. This is Race and Grace, a preaching series from New Community Church. Last week, uh, Nemi, Nemi kicked us off in, in part one, really painting a picture of where we have come from, that Christianity doesn't be- belong to one creed or culture or color, that it has always been um, multicultural, it's always been multiracial, it's always been multi-ethnic since, uh, since the very beginning. And this is our future too. One day we really will gather, Revelation 7-9, with a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. And as we do so, we will gather to and around the throne of Jesus and we will worship him together, both deeply diverse in terms of the great multitude, but also because there's no sin in the new heavens and the new earth, completely eradicated and dealt with, we will be deeply unified. That's, that's our future. Diverse, beautifully diverse, and stunningly and incredibly unified. That's, that's where we're heading. And as we've kind of talked about on a number of occasions, we right now are supposed to be a prophetic statement of what is one day going to come. And so right now, right here, right now, that should be a picture, or increasingly should be, a picture of us, both beautifully diverse and deeply unified. And it's a beautiful picture to paint, and you can kind of state it and dream and long for that, yet truthfully, it's a harder reality to achieve. And today I just want to spend some time addressing the both kind of the why that's the case and also kind of how the gospel gives us the answer to the how that increasingly becomes a reality. And as I said last week, we are talking, we're not talking about race uh, because we're interested in political correctness, far, far from it, but because we want to be a church that is shaped by the word of God made alive by the Spirit of God and declaring the power of God. That's why we want to talk about it. So if you've got a Bible, if you can turn to Ephesians chapter 2. We're just going to use this as the kind of place where we hang out and launch into it. Don't worry, it'll appear on the screen. Ephesians chapter 2 just speaks, and we're going to kind of jump around some of these verses here, speaks very powerfully into this particular topic. Verse 1, and you, that's all of us, were dead. You were dead. In the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of power of the air. Now, consequently, because you're dead, just jump over to verse 12. Consequently, because, because of your deadness, remember that you were at, at that time separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the, promise, to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God's in the world. Just go back to verse 4. But God. You, had, you were dead. You had no hope. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Jump back to verse 13. Now... 
because you've been made alive, because you've been saved by grace. Now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace." And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came, verse 17, and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then... You are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. Verse 22, in him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. What an incredibly beautiful, stunning, powerful, and actually very challenging bit of scripture. You see, this, this right here is, is the gospel. This is a, a summary, if you like, of the gospel. You were dead. That's what you once were. You were dead, spiritually speaking. God then stepped in and made you alive. And this is all a work of grace. Like you didn't make yourself undead. You didn't save yourself. All a work of grace, not based on anything you've done or didn't do or might do in the future or might not do in the future. It's all a work, a gift of grace. And he, as a result of that, brought you into the family. This family, the the people of God, now as a saint and a fellow citizen in the household of God. And in doing so, he made a way at the same time for all of the mess, all of the brokenness, all of the junk, all of the bleh that sin brought in, he made a way for all of that to be fixed and made right. He made a way for the, all the stuff that's the course of this world, he made a way for all of that to be fixed, all of it to be made right. And one day it will be perfectly Now we know, because we were in a series just a few weeks ago and looking at the gospel, that sin messes things up. And sin stains stuff. And so if we're truly to be a new community, if we're going to really be a people of grace, if we're really going to be made up of people from every tribe and every tongue, then we need to first of all call out the sin of racism and refuse to accept it. And we've just got to be really clear. Racism, full stop, is a sin. It's a, it's a, a violation. It's a sin against God. It's a, uh, a, a denial and a violation of the image of God as reflected in another person. So first and foremost, before it's anything else, it's a sin against God. But it's also a sin against man. It's a sin against mankind in the church. It's a sin against the communion of saints. It's a sin against your brother and sister in Christ. But it's also a sin against those who are outside the church because it is an absolute failure to obey the command of loving your neighbor. Let's just be clear. Racism is a a sin full stop. And we need to call it out whenever we see it, but we also need to dismantle the stain of racism as well, which is a bit harder to do. You see that? starts with accepting that racism exists and not just kind of out there in the world, but also in here. And I don't just mean in this room, I mean in here, in the heart. And that stain is way deeper than we realize. 
And to dismantle it, to become this diverse and and unified people that we dream of, we've got to both recognize it in our own lives, and we've also got to see the far-reaching effects so that we can do something about it. See, most of us think we're not racist. And by that, what we mean is that we would never intentionally use overtly racist language. Or we would never explicitly condone racism of, of, uh, of condone explicit racism of any kind. And we think, well, because I, I wouldn't do that, I would never say that, then, then it's not a problem. What's the issue? In fact, probably some of us have got that attitude right now. I'm not racist, it's fine, why are we talking about this? But actually, it's a problem that runs much deeper than we realize. See, the stain of racism stretches further. And it's harder to spot, but it's arguably more harmful and damaging to building a multi-everything kind of church that we dream of than perhaps anything else. There's a guy called Duke Kwan who has got this uh, wonderful um, definition, I guess, of what racism is. There's some big words in here. Racism is the sinful devaluation or over-evaluation or subordination or supraordination, putting one thing below another or one thing above another, and exclusion or preferential inclusion of God's image bearers on the basis of ethnicity, culture, or race. It's an idolatrous ecosystem of beliefs, behaviors, and social structures that assigns value or advantage based on ethnicity, culture, or race. Racism is individual and systemic. It is behavioral and attitudinal. It is conscious and subconscious. It is explicit and implicit. It is both active and passive. That's quite big, right? See, the, beha- the problem and the stain of racism runs very deep. Because ultimately, it's in the heart. Because deep down, this issue touches on the issue of identity. Back to Ephesians 2 for a moment. Paul's using a very specific example of Jews and Gentiles to illustrate a universal truth. When there are people from different backgrounds together in the same place at the same time, living alongside one another, there are walls of hostility, there are barriers that we put up that divide us. Now, we might not like the word hostility, We might think, well, I'm not hostile to anyone. That's way too strong. But we can't deny what the Bible is saying here. When God gives us, either individually or kind of corporately, when God gives us good gifts and talents and strengths, there's something in the human heart that, that takes these good gifts and it elevates them to an absolute value, and then it looks down on everyone else who doesn't have them, and it says, you're not as good as me. We take that which is good about ourselves and look at others who are not like it and say, that's, you're not as good as me. Now, we might not consciously want to admit that, but deep down, that's what we do. And this good gift that we have becomes a basis for hostility. And this is particularly true, not just for individuals, but also between groups of people. Races, cultures, classes of people. Just back to the racism quote for a moment. That's the devaluing or the overvaluing or the excluding or the preferring. And we do it mostly subconsciously on the basis of what we think is right and is normal. And if someone does it differently from us, well, they're not right 
or normal. Why? Well, because they do it different from us. And the way I do it is right and normal. And so somebody who doesn't do it like me, well, they can't therefore be right and normal because my way is right and normal. And so the way we get an identity, the way we define ourselves, the way we get our self-worth, if you like, is is by taking what's good about us, what's distinct about us, lifting it up, and then taking a look at everyone else and judging everyone else, especially those who who don't have what we have, and saying, oh, we're not like them. That's who we are, and that's who they are. In other words, we get our identity by looking down on other people, by excluding other people. And we see this in this perfect spot in the Bible where uh, that just expresses that is the, the prayer of the Pharisee in Luke 18, verse 11. See, when the Pharisee lifts his eyes to heaven and begins to pray, his first sentence is, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. It's literally, I thank you, God, that you've made me like this and I'm not like them. And we're exactly the same today. Like we can so easily fall into the trap of thinking we're better than other people. None of us would ever say it with our mouths. <laughs> like, no, no, that, we, we've learned better than that. We don't say it with our mouths. But we can so easily fall into the trap of, of thinking we're better than other people. We, we kind of think it in our hearts and we live it, with our li- live it with our lives. And it manifests itself in lots of different ways. But one way it manifests itself is that we all have a tendency to hang out with people who are like us who look like us, who value the same things we value, who who have a similar cultural heritage to us, who have a similar class to us, who have a similar whatever it is to us. Why do we generally hang out with people who look the same as us? Because they reflect back to us the things that we think are good and important and right and normal. We like hanging out with people who are the same as us because they affirm and reinforce our worldviews on things. That's one way that that kind of looking down on others manifests itself. Another way is that we subconsciously, and it is really subtle, but we subconsciously think we're better than other people. Now, immediately we all say, no, I don't think that. But it comes out in all sorts of little attitude things. Just for a moment, think about how different cultures view things. I won't label these cultures. You can, you can work them out for yourselves. Some cultures are time-orientated. All right, these cultures that are time-orientated, the most important thing is be on time. Other cultures are more a people or event-orientated. It's actually more important that you're with people than being somewhere on time. And so what do we do? We immediately begin to make judgments in our hearts and our heads. Depending which cultural kind of background you're in, some of us kind of think, why do these guys never turn up on time? And if you're in another cultural context, you think, why are these guys so uptight all the time? Why? We take that which is good about it. So is it, is it wrong to be time-orientated or people-orientated? No, of course not. It's just a different value we place on things. We take that which is good about ourselves, and we elevate it to something more significant, and we end up looking down on other people who are not like us. It's how we get an identity. And we don't kind of consciously, perhaps, judge people in that way, or maybe we do, I don't know. But we subconsciously just think, ah, well, our way, my way is right. And these guys need to change. And because we think we're right, and because we end up just even very subtly, subconsciously looking down on other people, what's between us? Hostility and barriers that divide us. 
And this attitude is woven so very deeply into the very fabric of our relationships, of our practices, and our traditions. And so what we do is, we again, very subconsciously, we welcome people who look different from us as long as they behave like us. And if they don't behave like us, what do we do? Well, we kind of, again, subconsciously look down on them and think, why can't they be more like me? So what's the answer? So what's the, what's the answer? Because our world quite rightly thinks that racism is wrong, right? But it doesn't know how to end it. Our culture... In our culture, we tell people not to be racist, and then we shame them when they are, and we shout at them when they are. You're racist, this, boom, 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 boom. One of the worst things to be labeled these days would be racist, right? Or bigoted in some way against people who are different from us. So we tell people don't do it, and when they do, when it creeps out, we shame people. But that ultimately doesn't change people's hearts or attitudes doesn't even really address the issue. Why? Because the issue is much deeper than just the behavioral attitude thing. It's right at the heart of who we are and how we understand our identity. So only the gospel then can answer this issue. Galatians 2 provides us with a brilliant example of how the gospel changes our attitude towards our own sort of racial pride and, and, and cultural heritage. In, in Acts chapter 10, God has shown Peter that salvation is by grace alone. Regardless of race and culture, everyone is equally lost in sin and equally found in Christ. And it says in Acts chapter 10 verse 28, Peter says, God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. And then verse 34, he says, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. So, so Peter's had this revelation. Ah, okay, before God. Oh, right, this is what the gospel is. And yet, sometimes later in the book of Galatians, we see Paul sees Peter refusing to eat with the Gentile Christians. So he's had this statement of, oh, I understand the gospel. And then he starts living very, very differently. And so Paul confronts Peter about his racism. And what he doesn't do is say, you're breaking the rules about racism. You're breaking the rules. This is, that's not how you're supposed to behave anymore. No, no, no. Rather, in Galatians 2.14, he says, I saw that their conduct was not in, in step with the truth of the gospel. He basically says to Peter, listen, this gospel has changed you, and now you are not acting in line with the gospel. And so to act in line with the gospel is to draw out in every situation the implications of the gospel, that we are sinners saved by grace, and then to live in uh, conformity and consistency with that truth. So back to Ephesians 2 for a moment. Because Ephesians 2 gives us a solution to the problem. Jesus! who has reconciled us and thereby killed and has also killed the hostility by creating in himself one new man in place of two. Verse 15 of Ephesians 2. You see, before Jesus, the earth pretty much had two groups of humanity. There were Jews and everyone else, the Gentiles. That's, that, that's who you were. You were a Jew or you were a Gentile. And then after Jesus' death and resurrection, a third ethnicity is now supernaturally born, the multicolored, multi-ethnic church, those who are now in Christ Jesus. You see, that's what the gospel does. 
The gospel doesn't just save us from our sin, it totally transforms us. It doesn't just wipe away all the mistakes we've made, although it does do that. It doesn't just say, hey, there's a clean slate, although it does do that. It absolutely, at the very deepest root, completely changes our identity. It reconciles those who were once enemies. It makes us one in Christ because, not because it says now you can forget about the past, but something deep has gone on. It has given us a whole new identity. We're not, when you get saved, you're not just a, a better version of the, of the person you were before. It's not just, I, I used to do this and now I don't. I'm just an upgraded version of my... No, no, no. You're a completely new person. 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. He's not an upgraded person. He is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. That means my primary identity now, if I'm a Christian, if you're a Christian here, is in Christ. See, the gospel transforms our entire identity. Now, let's be really clear. Identity is a complex, has a complex set of layers to it. For we are many things. Our occupation impacts our identity. Our ethnic heritage is part of our identity. Our cultural values are part of our identity. Our level of education, whatever, is part of, it's all part of who we are. But the problem begins when we begin to assign different values to the different components of our identity. And we think this part of my identity is more important than that part. Understanding the gospel means understanding that at the deepest part of who I am, I have been changed completely. And so who I am now, before I'm anything else, who I am is in Christ. And the more that we grow in the gospel, the more that we grow in Christian maturity, the more that we grasp and understand the depth of the gospel, and the more that we recognize just what has happened to us, the more this begins to make sense. I am a completely new person right now. And repeatedly, the Bible calls the church a new people, a new nation. Verse 19 of Ephesians 2 says we're fellow citizens with God's people. 1 Peter 2.9 calls us a holy nation, which literally means we are a new ethnicity now. So our relationship to each other in Christ is to be stronger than our relationship to other members of our own racial or national groups or, dare I say, even our own families. When you become a Christian, you have been made completely new. So you're not primarily from the UK or Brazil or Nigeria, whatever nation you are from. You are now a citizen of God's nation. And so I'm not a white British Christian I'm a Christian who happens to have been born in Belfast to white parents, therefore my ethnicity is white British. If you are Nigerian here today, you are not a Nigerian Christian, you're a Christian who is from Nigeria or India or wherever else you are from. We are now those who are in Christ and our primary identity is in Christ and that's what unites us. I am a completely new creation. We are now brothers and sisters in Christ, following Jesus, our older brother, part of the same family, united, equal before God. Now we don't lose our cultural heritage or our ethnicity in that moment. 
It doesn't become unimportant, but it's not our primary identity anymore. We're fellow citizens. We're fellow saints. We're fellow members of the household of God. A couple of years ago, we, uh, you, lots of you know this, we as a church um, sponsor over 100 and something kids in, in Kenya. And a couple of years ago, I was walking through Matari slum, and I've never felt more uncomfortable, more out of place, more aware of my whiteness, my westernness, my richness, than I did walking through those slums of Nairobi. And yet the moment I walked through the door of the shack that Colin and I were visiting, I've never felt more normal, more at home than I did in that moment. Why? Because they, just like me, have been made alive in Christ. Once they were alienated from God and each other, but now because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, supernaturally this third ethnicity has been formed of which we now are both part. So the hugely outrageous in many ways statement is that now I have more in common with a single dwell, a slum dwelling, single mother, with no education, no material possessions uh, to speak of. I have more in common with her than I do with my non-Christian next door neighbor right now. And I have more in common with her than I do with some of the fam- members of my own family. Why? Because both she and I are part of the blood-bought people of God. We are literal brothers and sisters in Christ. And if you're a Christian here today, so are you. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. But that's only one side of it. It's not just about stressing our unity, although we need to start there. It's also about celebrating our diversity. Because quite clearly, Nemi touched on this last week, quite clearly, we are not all the same. We are all equal before God. There is not one race who is superior to another, but it's quite clear that we're not all the same. And that's a very good thing. You know that I don't see color, I don't see difference, kind of, it's well-intentioned, but it's nonsense. Like, open your eyes and just have a look. <laughs> it's, it's, somehow we're elevating, uh, super, we, we have this thing of, uh, I'm super spiritual, but I just don't see the difference. Well, I suggest you change your glasses or something, because quite, Obviously, we are. And you know what? That's not just okay. That's to be celebrated. God did not make a mistake when he made you like he made you. He did not make a mistake in the different nations and racial backgrounds and heritages and all the rest of it is. He made the differences. He sees the differences. He's definitely not colorblind. And because he's not, neither should we be. And it's completely wrong for us to downplay our differences. It's completely wrong to say, hey, we're all all the same in Christ. Yes, we are. Equal-wise, but we're not all the same. We all have different stories. We all have different backgrounds. We all have different heritages. And we should recognize and celebrate the difference because God created it and he does too. See, Revelation 5, Revelation 7, the, the beauties of every single culture are gathered and represented around the throne. It's going to last for all eternity. We don't kind of get to glory and it's this mush of kind of gray now. No, no, it's something beautifully multicolored that will last for all eternity. And in Revelation 21, we are told that in the eternal city of God, in its final state, it will be deeply enriched because the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Verse 26, and they will bring in all the glory and honor of the nations. Around the throne, all the 
wonderful different parts of, of humanity, all the wonderful different parts of culture, the glory and the honor of it all will be there for all eternity in the new heavens and the new earth in their perfected state, meaning there'll be no more sin, there'll be no more brokenness, just beautiful, incredible diversity and great unity. They will, all the culture, all cultures will be perfected because they will be freed from the stain of sin and that glorious diversity will last forever. And so being a prophetic statement of what is to come means, yes, being unified right here, right now, but also being diverse right here, right now. And that doesn't just mean that we have different colored faces in the room. Let's just be clear. That's not the goal, just to have different colored faces in the room. No, no, no. As we read through Scripture, as we read through the, the Bible, we... We see on the one hand that our self-justifying hearts, they use racial and, and cultural gifts in sinful ways. We're better than them. We never want to admit that that's what we think, but that's kind of an attitude that we have. But we also see in Scripture that racial and cultural distinctions are created by God to more fully represent God. The church is supposed to be the manifold wisdom of God on display, which means we need all the different elements of different cultures and ethnicities and races on display, not just, oh, look, we've got different shades. No, 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 the cultures on display. Now, we all have our own cultural prejudices, we just do. Our own preferences and stuff. And what we think is right and what we would prefer, the way we'd prefer to do it. But as we grow in the gospel, as we grow in maturity, we should begin to lose our prejudices. But at the same time, we also have our own cultural perspectives and experiences that we cannot and should not lose because they enhance us as a people. And we need to get better at learning the differences between prejudice and perspective. See, and this starts, and this is kind of rubber hits the road, sober moment, honest moment. This starts with recognizing that we are not a white church that welcomes non-white people. This is not white people as the insiders welcoming people from other races as the outsiders. Biblically speaking for a moment, we're all the outsiders. We're all those who were far off. Biblically speaking, we, every single one of us, no matter, unless you're an ethnic Jew and sat in the room right now, all of us were on the outside. We were all alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. We were all far off. And Jesus, by his blood, has welcomed all of us into the family. So we've just got to state that as a fact, but at the same time, we've also got to recognize that historically in this church, we have been shaped by predominantly white cultural norms. And we've got to be honest about that. We've kind of done stuff in a certain way, which has, which has represented the majority, historically speaking, culture. Now, we've come a long way, we've grown an awful lot. One of our venues is majority non-white British now, which is exciting. But we've still historically, and still we're working through this now, as part of what we're doing this series, 
been shaped by majority white norms. And I honestly believe that the, the greatest hindrance to our dream as a church is not going to be overt bigotry and kind of out there racism, but it's actually going to be a blindness to the shape and nature of our cultural norms. And what I mean by that is it means mistaking prejudice for perspective. When we see somebody doing something different, leading something different, praying in a different way, leading a prayer meeting in a different way, or leading worship in a different way, or bringing something publicly in a different way, we can often go, well, that's outside my experience. It's, outside my pre- it's not my preference for how things are done. That's kind of, that makes me feel a little bit awkward. It makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable. And, and, and if I'm honest, I didn't really like it. And therefore, we, what we tend to do is we have a bias towards viewing it through a value lens and we, rather than a style lens. And we end up kind of making a judgment, that's not us. That's not the way we do things here. And I just want to say that if it's brought by somebody or led by somebody who is a Christian and is in our church, it absolutely is us. We've got to broaden our definition and our range of what us is that represents increasingly the diversity of culture and ethnicity and race and everything else. See, that's one of the stains of racism. A passivity that kind of loves unity and stresses that without genuine inclusion of diversity and difference. Like we love, as long as everybody acts the same, we love having people who look different. And where we've got that wrong, where I've got that wrong, I repent of that because it's time to change. It's time to move forward. We've made some huge steps, but it's time to make some more. See, the church we see in Scripture, the one I dream of seeing here, doesn't close its eyes to our broken racial history. It sees it. But it's a church which addresses it, does something about it. It's a church where everyone is a little bit uncomfortable in terms of style. Where every single person, ooh, okay, this is what it is to be part of a multi-everything kind of church. There's moments I'm like, woo, and other moments I'm like, ah, I'm not quite sure where I'm at right now. And that's okay. See, we can't achieve genuine diversity without some discomfort for all of us. It's a church where cross-cultural friendships and relationships are the norm, not the exception. It's a church where our range of what is us is ever-increasing, which includes the way we pray, which includes the way we worship, which includes even the way we express ourselves physically, and emotionally, perhaps even. It's a church where at every level, every level, we have people from all tribes of tongues, not just in the room, but included. Leading, shaping, creating, owning. It's a church where unity and diversity is stressed and celebrated. We need to be thankful for the progress we've made in this area, but we need to continue to celebrate every single victory Every time someone repents of racial sin, we celebrate. Every time someone forgives someone else, we celebrate. Every time someone has a racial aha moment, we celebrate. Every pioneer in this area, those who have jumped over significant hurdles to be here in terms of style and preference, 
those who have gone before, we celebrate and we honor. And if you look like me, that's not you. For those of you who have jumped over those hurdles, for those of you who um, have stepped out of comfort zones into something else, absolutely love you guys and honor you guys in a huge way. For those of you who have been here for many years and have recognized stuff and gone, we will go with some changes. We will adapt. Absolutely love you guys. And if you're somewhere in the middle, I love you too. <laughs> but we are the people of God. He's building in this house. And there are better days ahead for us. See, I long for the day where we don't have to do sermon series on race. Not because it's unimportant. It's always going to be important. But because racial integration and becoming a biblically multi-everything is just the normal way we do things here. It's just so second nature, we don't even need to point it out because it's just who we are. That day's coming. Day's coming. When Hannah and I arrived at this church, there were, you could count on one set of hands how many non-white people there were. That was less than 15 years ago. Imagine where we're going to be in another 15 years. We don't need to wait 15 years. Right here, right now. We're praying for this. We're believing for this. It's time for some people to step up into new things. It's time for some people to step in and say, I'm here, I'm all here. And it's time for every single one of us to step out of some comfort zones that we have. The tendency to just hang out with people who are like us. The tendency we have to kind of, mm, they need to do it more like we do it. No, no, no. The we is far broader now than it has ever been. And it's only going to get wider and bigger and more glorious as we celebrate our diversity, as we stress our unity. We've got to get okay with being a bit uncomfortable because we're about a bigger work than our comfort. We're about the glory of Jesus in the nations. And one day that will be gloriously perfect. We're not there yet. By the grace of God, we're closer than we have been before. And this time next year, we're going to be even closer than where we currently are.